This is Nathan Serkin, and you're listening to the Chronicle Headlines. This week, we look at NFTs, what they are, why they're controversial, and how a Columbia student makes $300,000 selling NFTs using only an iPhone. We will also tackle the environmental effects of NFTs, as well as some of the possible solutions. It's a huge concern because platforms like Bitcoin and Ethereum, they consume so much energy, and, and Bitcoin in specific, um, is probably one of the more detrimental platforms. This week, I interviewed Kimberly Capella on her first piece with The Chronicle, Sustainable and Stylish, Rocky Vintage, Curated Collections Tap into Ethical Fashion Trends. Lastly, we talk with Chronicle's managing editor, Anna Pusilaki, on dating in the pandemic and how the pandemic has created new obstacles for those looking for love, casual hookups, friends, and more. It's easy to get triggered, so like you take off the mask, it's different than what you assume it would be. This is the Chronicle Headlines. Now to the latest trend that's sweeping the internet, the skyrocketing prices for digital art sold as NFTs or non-fungible tokens, digital collectibles, have really taken off this year. This is what it looks like when your artwork sells for $69 million. So, NFTs. The trendy and controversial non-interchangeable unit of data stored on a blockchain, which is a form of digital ledger that can be sold and traded, has found its way to Colombia through Elise Swopes. Swopes, a senior arts management and graphic design major, makes $300,000 selling NFTs using only an iPhone. NFTs, while still wildly popular, are highly controversial due to the amount of energy it takes to mine and run the blockchain, which is a system of recording information and transactions that is duplicated and distributed across the entire network of computer systems on the blockchain. The Ethereum blockchain uses around 33 terawatts of electricity, which is the same amount of power it takes to power the country of Serbia. Bitcoin, another cryptocurrency, is estimated to use 128 terawatt hours a year, which is more energy than the entire countries of Ukraine, Norway, and Sweden. I'm here with Chronicle staff reporter Cami Smelser, who interviewed Columbia's very own Elise Swopes on her selling of NFTs. All right, welcome, Cami. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Now, prior to interviewing Elise Swopes, what was your prior knowledge of NFTs? Yeah, so I had done a little bit of my own research, just seeing NFTs come up more and more on social media. Um, but I was also working on an article for Frank Magazine that mentioned NFTs. And from the little bit of research I did for that, it was basically, in my mind, I thought of them as kind of like digital art auctions, where they an artist would basically create a piece of work that was digital and they put it up for auction and it would make a bunch of money. Um, but now before interviewing Elise, I did a little bit more in-depth research and I have a little bit more of an understanding. So non-fungible tokens, they're basically like digital representations of ownership or rights to original pieces of content or art. And they can be bought and sold like physical pieces of artwork. Um, but the word fungible can sometimes like trip people up Right. Um, so it's more digestible if you think of them as non-replaceable tokens, as like these pieces of art or tweets or content, they can't be replaced or created like the original piece of work. And I know that you mentioned a bit about um, NFTs being trendy. 
and they are also quite controversial. I know there's a lot of misconceptions and confusions about NFTs and them being bad for the environment. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so NFTs, Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, Ethereum being the main platform NFTs are sold on. Um, basically, <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge concern because platforms like Bitcoin and Ethereum, they consume so much energy. And, and Bitcoin in specific um, is probably one of the more detrimental platforms because it consumes as much as 128 terawatt hours of electricity. Um, and that was according to the Cambridge University Index um, I included that was in the article. But right. um, basically, that's as much as whole countries like Ukraine. And Ethereum wow. consumes as much as 33 terawatts of electricity. And that is as much as whole countries like Serbia. Um, and so while Ethereum, you know, isn't as detrimental as Bitcoin, it's definitely still concerning. Um, so Very NFTs, so. They, they are contributing to that. Elise, uh, she mentioned that she did uh, use Ethereum, right? Yeah, she uses mostly Ethereum. All right. You and Elise talked a bit about NFTs and their effect on the environment. Uh, let's go ahead and take a listen to that. So I've read that NFTs, they can require like quite a bit of energy um, and they generate massive amounts of greenhouse gases in order to be sold. Is this something that you that might bother you as an NFT artist or any thoughts on how they've been impacting the environment? Well, I will say, I think that the hard part about people being educated about this is that it's easy to say that something affects the environment. What's not easy to say is that the blockchain is consisting of different crypto coins that are run completely different on each platform. So if I'm selling an NFT for Tezos, it's different if I'm selling an NFT for Bitcoin. It's different if I'm mm -hmm. selling an NFT for Ethereum. It's different if I'm selling a Bitcoin for, you know, Ash or whatever, right? And I say all that because there are certain coins that require different amounts of energy to be to be mined. And so Bitcoin specifically is one of those coins that is affecting the environment, unfortunately. Well, what are your thoughts on that uh, about what she said, maybe her reaction? Yeah. Did she seem a bit like defensive to you? Yeah. So when I initially asked her that question, she definitely seemed a little defensive just because she is someone, I mean, she's made $300,000 um, selling NFTs it's in the current market. And so... Right. Um, she you know her saying that well it's easy for someone to say that something's affecting the environment did seem a little defensive because this is something she uses to make a lot of money That's right. um, and then her kind of she went into kind of describing what is happening what is you know why people are saying that nfts are bad for the environment um and she even said she had to do a little bit more research herself to figure out what Ethereum is doing to right. make their platform a little more environmental because they are going in that direction. But she said she had to do a little bit more research to figure what exactly they're doing. Yeah, I know you mentioned a bit about them trying to go in a different direction to kind of have a less impact on the environment. Now, let's talk a bit about that. You know, NFTs are certainly not going anywhere. 
So we, we need to talk about solutions. Mm -hmm. Now, what is a solution? And in your article, you talked about staking mm -hmm. and that Ethereum is planning to launch an upgrade with the hopes of cutting their energy consumption by more than 99%, according to Fortune magazine. So they basically, they would plan to switch to a proof of stake model that would rid it of energy consuming crypto mining and replace it with staking. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about what staking is and why it's viewed as a possible solution? Yeah, for sure. So uh, staking, uh, it is similar to mining, but mining, basically what mining is, is there's people or there are so they're called miners. They'll go in and complete transactions by solving a puzzle or an equation in order for that transaction on the blockchain on the blockchain to be completed. Um, and so staking, what staking is going to do is those miners or people who complete those transactions or work to complete the transactions uh, on the blockchain will no longer need to solve those puzzles or equations to prove their work on the proof of stake blockchain. So making that'll make the processing power for the blockchain transactions much lower, making okay. their environment environmental impact a little less detrimental. All right. Well, thank you for that. Now, can you can we talk a bit about why um, Elise was so successful? Was it strategic or was she just at the right place at the right time? Yeah, so and this is something that she she shared with me is she even shared at the beginning of my article was that she was really lucky to have entered into the NFT industry when she did because she entered it in February 2020, which is right when NFTs were taking off. And so it's been that way for her in a lot of, you know, the social media platforms that she's entered. I mean, when she was 13, she started creating websites and she has taken such an interest in the online world. Um, and in 2013, she was a user of Instagram and took off there as well. So I think for her, it's just been like, she's entered into these industries at the right time. And it's just kind of been really interesting to see that she's had so much luck with coming into these industries when she did. For sure, and I, I definitely do see as well a kind of a correlation between NFTs and the art world. Mm -hmm. um, just in the sense that, you know, with NFTs, you know, they can be valued at such high prices for things that don't really hold any value, you know, like a tweet or, you know, pictures of cats or, you know, uh, sports clips of someone, you know. So it's like, we were placing value on things that don't really hold that much value and or any value at all, really. But we're placing value on them. Mm. And that's very similar to the art world. You know, a bunch of people come together and we say that this painting is worth millions and then this painting is worth nothing. And so it makes sense why, you know, artists are involved and with NFTs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and it's interesting because when you look at like the human psychology behind how much value we give something, um, NFTs, we will give them so much value. So At least the people value. who are interested in NFTs give them a lot yeah. of value. Like uh, Jack Dorsey, who is the CEO of Twitter, he sold his first tweet for $2.9 million. Wow. Um, and someone bought it for $2.9 million. And so <laughs> we, the people that are in this industry, they put so much value on these pieces of work, which is why they're making so much yep. money. And I think p one thing that really saddens me about NFTs is kind of just the trivial side of it, you know? Mm -hmm. People are buying them and 
it's creating so much such an impact on the environment and you know it's using such great amount of energy you know for trivial things you know things that don't really have any value you know we we're not powering a town yet we're using the energy it would take to um and so i think that's something that's just it's sad but you know you know nfts certainly aren't going anywhere mm-hmm. and you know whether whether or not you think people like at least selling nfts are wrong or in the wrong i think we can say that she is certainly a smart businesswoman and has a bright future ahead mm-hmm. yeah and i think because after talking to her and you know kind of learning her background um she has seen a lot of success yep. and i know that now after she's made so much money um selling something that does have a really concerning impact on our world yep. um it can be pretty frustrating but mm. i think for her she's she has again entered into industries at the right time yeah and she's you know making the most of those opportunities whether or not we view them as correct yeah i mean if you if someone's making a lot of money it will be very hard to tell them you should stop mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, and i also know that she's also giving back to the community as well so mm-hmm. i mean there's that as well yeah and that's you know, it's it's cool to see that that yeah. she is using this platform for a greater good, um, in the way that she can by uplifting women of color and the industry, uplifting their work, supporting their work, and giving them the spotlight that they that they deserve. Well, thank you so much, Cami. Yeah, thanks for having me. Be sure to check out Cami's article on the Chronicle on NFTs, where she talked with Elise about NFTs, her struggles and triumphs about her life, and more. Thanks so much. Today I'm interviewing Kimberly Capella on her piece, Sustainable and Stylish, Rocky's Vintage Curated Collection Tap into Ethical Fashion Trends. In her piece, she speaks to Alyssa Wright, creative director and owner of Rocky Vintage, and Columbia students about sustainable fashion trends and the importance of following fashion trends ethically. From a small Etsy shop to a multitude of branches, Rocky Vintage offers vintage clothing, housewares, and Wright's original design. Welcome to the show, Kimberly. How are you? I am doing great, and I'm super ecstatic about the sex issue being released as well, and that was my first printed newspaper byline, so I'm really happy to be featured part of it, and just to have my first byline ever be Rocky Vintage. Congratulations on both of those. You, you guys can check out our sex issue. Is at any newsstand near any Columbia building? And speaking about your first vi- byline, how did you learn about Wright and Rocky Vintage? Yeah, so I first met Alyssa Wright, the creator behind Rocky Vintage, at a vintage flea market called Get Flea in December, and I actually got to talk to her at a fashion show she was vending at at the Joy District Bar a couple weeks later, and I was just instantly like gravitated towards her curations and designs. I've just never seen a designer create pants from blankets or like tennis skirts from um, silk ties, and... I was just like really drawn to her style and she just stood out in a crowd with like her 80s inspired like club wear and vintage hats and stuff. So yeah, um, her designs really reflect like my dream closet and um, yeah, I just think our generation and college students would be really drawn to um, her the sustainable aspect of her designs. Yeah, I actually went to Get Flea in December and I remember seeing her and just like when you talk about I know this piece is about sustainability and just like you talking about her making pants out of blankets and things like that. Could you go into detail about the resurgence of vintage fashion and um, sustainable clothing during the pandemic? 
Yeah, definitely. So I feel like people really had the chance to sit down and experiment and just like sort of deconstruct their styles instead of following influencer trends, micro trends, especially on social media, and just like swayed away from feeding into fast fashion retailers, especially, and just really experience a side of the fashion industry that they indulged in that could have been fast fashion, how in just how environmentally destructive and that is and just the pollution it's causing i also started working and managing at an independent vintage store up north during the pandemic and i really got to see customers be really excited to buy one-of-a-kind pieces you wouldn't find in like department stores or fast fashion retailers and this just gives everyone um, a lot of room to reinvent their closets and to have confidence with their bodies and how they present themselves to others and it's a complete game changer for confidence but overall um Vintage and secondhand really made a comeback through accessible and affordable online shops and small business retailers that trended during the pandemic, such as Depop, Etsy, and people had the opportunity to become more invested in fashion, vintage communities, start their own businesses, or just share their love for vintage. And Chicago has a huge vintage fashion flea market and sustainable community that's a great way for anyone to start supporting independent brands we're doing something really completely different from mainstream micro trends yeah and I just was also wondering like how have you seen Wright go about providing sustainable clothing to her customers yeah so she has been collecting destroying and creating clothes since she was little and she was really invested in creating her own personal style that stood apart from everyone else so she would hit thrift outlets to create her own clothes and wanted to combine DIY childlike inspiration into her creative processes um it's sustainable because she shops 70s, 80s, and 90s vintage and secondhand for a lot of her collection launches on top of her original designs that she previously upcycled and painted. Um, she also curates and sells under a sustainable fashion website called Holy Thrift with a bunch of other independent fashion creators, and it's super accessible and affordable. Alyssa also mentioned that the vintage and sustainable design community she's a part of are super passionate and have an impact on younger generations and just want to experiment with eco-friendly neat clothing and then for you I just want to kind of backtrack I know you said that you um, worked at a vintage store during the pandemic but do you shop sustainably and like what drove you to make that decision or why do you shop that way yeah so um it just allows me to become more aware of my environmental footprint and what brands I really should be investing in and supporting outside of my work. I truly have a genuine passion for collecting and styling vintage and secondhand clothing and accessories. And in the last three years, I really shifted my entire perspective on like outlet malls. And I feel that my personal style is really unique and has a lot of different elements to it. Like maximalism eccentricism like reminiscence of like early 90s grunge incorporating my spirituality into my clothing and like layering it with really gaudy chunky accessories and platforms and i just feel i wouldn't be as free making those creative choices in major department retailers and you can't really find fun experiences when you don't know what you're walking into when you go to a secondhand shop and hunting for one of those one-of-a-kind vintage pieces and Secondhand shopping really gives me the freedom to explore more diverse style choices and allows me to be more confident as a consumer knowing I'm just like making change in my footprint and I'm more educated shopper and knowing directly where my money goes. Yeah, and I know during the pandemic, I as well started kind of thrifting and I felt like I was able to showcase my like individuality and my kind of stylistic creativity. And also just as a college student, like, 
it just is um, a more affordable way to shop and be able to buy a bunch of clothes. But I know in your piece, you also talked about um, college students and Gen Z are leaning more towards vintage fashion and secondhand shopping. And I just was wondering, in your opinion, why do you think they're leaning towards that? Definitely, like you mentioned, the affordability, but also the accessibility and the freedom to express like your your own unique style of fashion taste. And it allows you to play with the idea that you're your own designer and that you're having your own main character moment every day. And I just feel like our generation and younger generations are definitely seeing the benefits of buying vintage and secondhand in terms of just achieving and contributing to like environmental justice and you become your own trendsetter influencer and model so yeah I feel like we're taking a step back from like investing in micro trends and really honoring like amazing like trailblazing designers and independent businesses that are like woman-owned queer-owned black brown indigenous owned and that their designs um have a purpose and like with the intentions of accessibility individuality and authenticity for their customers you can find Rocky Vintage at Holy Thrift Online Marketplace and local vending pop-up events. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Kimberly. Thank you. Valentine's Day is over, but love is still in the air. With us diving into online dating during the pandemic. With many Columbia students turning to dating apps for making friends or casual hookups. Many students attribute this to social anxiety, isolation, and the fear of contracting the COVID-19 virus. And with dating apps being the preferred method of dating for many, some issues arise, such as not wanting to catch the COVID-19 virus. Before um, even meeting in person, I know I would always ask, like, hey, just making sure, have you ever been around anyone with COVID recently? Or, like, have you tested positive Mm -hmm. Um, and would, like, act accordingly? Um, Because I really was not trying to get COVID through, especially a stranger. To mask fishing, a new term coined during COVID-19 that refers to being catfished by someone wearing a face mask. I personally like using these dating apps instead of meeting people now because I've talked to some people who have very attractive eyes. You kind of assume that their face is equally attractive, but like the nose and the mouth are very distinctive things. When those are like taken away and all you see the eyes, it's easy to get triggered. So like you take off the mask, it's different than what you assume it would be. To queer individuals feeling more comfortable meeting people online. It just feels safer meeting somebody like online when they have their presence, you know, being promoted as a queer person. To others feeling that online dating is too detached from reality. No, it's just like you're literally just swiping left and right. Mm-hmm. Kind of like if you were like, if you're playing like a game like Marble Blast on the computer. Busalaki gives us an inside look at the world that is online dating and how Columbia students are using online dating apps in their personal lives. Welcome, Anna. Hi, Nathan. Thanks so much for being here. Let's talk about online dating during the pandemic. I find that it is such a fascinating topic because I feel like the pandemic has really changed dating and online dating in a sense, from making sure people are vaccinated to mask fishing, there's just so many new obstacles people are having to deal with. Now, let's talk mask fishing. First off, what is mask fishing? Yeah, so mask fishing is um, kind of like a play on the term catfishing, which is when um, someone, you know, is presenting themselves online as someone who they're not. 
uh, and mask fishing is kind of like the COVID version of that. Um, I'm not sure if you can relate, but it's like seeing someone wearing a mask and um, just like only seeing their eyes and mouth. And it's like, but then when you see their actual face, it's like a big reveal, like unexpected, yeah. <laughs> not how you thought they looked. Oh, totally. I've, I've been masked fish, maybe not on purpose, but I've had classmates who, you know, you see their, you see their eyes and then you're like, okay, I think I know what she looked like. And then they take it off and this is like a whole new person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the same thing actually went for the Zoom because I also I had a lot of classmates who, you know, they wouldn't have their cameras on. So I would just see kind of a picture. And it's actually a funny story. I had, you know, in the journalism department, a lot of us are in the same classes. And so a lot of us have been together for like years now. And um, there's a few people I was in the same class with and their camera was never on. Right. And so I only saw their, their picture and then. Then I only saw them with masks on. And then I saw one of them without a mask. I'm like, that is not what I pictured you to look like. <laughs> yeah, it's always a big surprise, too, when there's like a piercing or oh, facial yeah. hair underneath the mask. <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, but great. Now, let's talk about the issue of people trying to stay safe from COVID while still trying to meet new people online. I know that vaccination status is a big issue with people, you know, not always being vaccinated. And, you know, people online are well known to not always be the most truthful, you know, from lying about age, height, occupation. You know, who, who's going to say they're not going to lie about being vaccinated? Um, and I know that you talked to a student, actually, who shared concerns about that. Um, can you please talk a bit about that? Yeah, so I think with online dating, there's like a lot of pros and cons. Um, and I think with COVID, that's vaccination status is definitely one of them because, you know, if you are truthful about it, um, you can filter your feed to only show you people who are vaccinated if that's right. your preferred um, demographic of people that you're comfortable seeing. And so, um, but, you know, just like how people can pretty easily make fake vaccination cards it seems like someone could easily also say on a dating app that they're vaccinated when they're actually not. So it's just one of those things where like, I guess when you meet the person and hopefully they are what they say they are and, you know, are vaccinated. Yeah. And I know you mentioned a bit about the fake vaccination cards. I mean, that's a whole process in itself. And it's, it's so easy to just click vaccinated on an app when you're in fact not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just with other stuff lying on profiles, it's like, it's kind of just like, um, like what Sage, one of the sources said, it's kind of just like a game almost like you're just yeah. seeing what you can get, hoping, hoping people are being, you know, honest and, and have the same intentions. Oh, for sure. And, you know, on that note, you know, let's talk a bit about that, um, where they talked about online dating being detached from reality compared to meeting people in real life and kind of how online dating is like a game in the sense like you're you're playing to win you know if you match with someone you win and if you don't you lose um can you talk a bit about that yeah um i think kind of similar to social media with online dating like you you know with online dating you create a profile and it's kind of like the best pictures of yourself and how you want people to perceive you right. um, and I think that's the aspect that's a little detached from reality because when you meet someone in real life there's no 
faking it. There's no picking and choosing what parts of yourself to present or what to the angles other person. To present. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think compared to meeting people in real life, it is a very curated form of meeting people. Um, but then like what I talked to the expert, uh, Taylor Mountain about, um, she was like, yeah, it's, it can be a lot of that, but it can also be like a lot of just putting your clear intentions out there and being really specific about who you want to give your time and energy to, um, and, and that sort of thing. So there's, there, like I said before, there's pros and cons with it. Um, but overall it is definitely, um, uh, um, I'd say a unique way of dating. Oh, unique is definitely the right word to use it. I feel like, you know, I, I have, you know, as a college student and 23-year-old, I've also uh, had my fair share of dating, online dating experiences. Me and, too. Oh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've ran into similar situations where, you know, someone's pictures, they may have been a bit generous with the photos or maybe the filters I used. And then in a person, it's always a different story or the other way around. You know, maybe they, they're not so good at taking pictures and maybe it's like a pretty standard selfie. Um, and then in person, like they look so much better. And so it's like, it's, you never really know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, some of the people I talked to also, they were like, it's kind of weird talking about this with a stranger, but also like it shouldn't be because it's so normal now. And yeah. I think they're more so used to be uh, such a stigma around online dating. But I think COVID kind of took that away because maybe people who, you know, wouldn't think twice about doing it in the past were really like, I'm stuck at home, can't go out. How else yeah. do I meet people? Um, or I'm trying to be safe, you know, I don't want to go to a bar or a club or a restaurant, like, yeah. this is a way to meet people. So I, th I think that's a good thing is just kind of breaking that stigma. And uh, I'm so glad you mentioned that, because I mean, yeah, that is totally right that, you know, I feel like there was a bit more stigma around online dating. And I feel like when people, people would tend to usually lie about it, like, oh, like we met like a park, you know, you know, some people were embarrassed True, to yeah. say, hey like we met on tinder or grind or whatever mm -hmm. um and yeah i think that definitely the pandemic and dating has definitely made it a bit more acceptable and you know even just with your story um you, you talk to a lot of students and i know you mentioned that it could be a little maybe a bit awkward to talk to you know quote unquote strangers about this but like you said i mean it's a very normal normal thing and i'm glad that we're seeing you know online dating being uh, normalized even under the circumstances mm -hmm. and especially for our age group you know yeah. I looked at tinder's user statistics and it was you know the age 18 to 24 is their highest users oh, which wow. is young people yeah. college age people and actually this was interesting too I found out that tinder when they were first um doing their um you know product research they started with the app on a college campus to oh, see really? how it would work and how people would you know if people would latch on to the concept or not and clearly they did clearly, so. <laughs> clearly it's popular <laughs> yeah oh, fascinating uh well i'd also like to talk a bit about you know how online dating has helped queer individuals feel more comfortable when meeting people um i know you talked with alex murphy and that he shared this sentiment uh, could you please talk a bit about that as well yeah so alex uh murphy they were talking about you know um how they just feel safer when someone's you know clearly similar 
I would say to like vaccination status when someone's clearly promoting themselves as something. And so in this case, um, if you're clearly promoting yourself as queer, it, it kind of breaks that boundary. And that was also a conversation that I had with the expert about like, it's kind of just breaking down barriers that you, it's kind of cutting to the chase. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a mutual interest. And so I think um, for, you know, being queer and for queer people, it's, it's like, if you're meeting someone in person, you don't always know, or, yeah. you know, it's just, um, there's just a lot of nuances to that. And so, and, you know, same with um, being heterosexual as well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's just, it's less of the shenanigans, if you will, <laughs> and more of just kind of being straight up about what you're looking for, what you're, who you're interested in, and all of that. Oh, for sure. I mean, you're definitely, you're, you're weeding out people who may not be interested in you and vice versa, you know, with the swiping right, left, and like you said, getting rid of the shenanigans, getting right to the chase, and I think that's that's one of the, the great things I think about online dating. Mm -hmm. And it's great that there are so many apps, too, especially, uh, specifically for queer people, yeah. um, you know, like Her and Grindr, um, and so it's really great. And also, I mean, there's apps specifically for people with religious backgrounds yeah. and, you know, ethnic backgrounds. So um, there's really just a whole a whole world out there for people to find what they're looking for. It's a it's a fascinating world out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much, Anna. That's our time for today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Make sure to swipe right on the Chronicle's latest issue, which is our sex issue. It features Anna's story, as well as many other just as interesting and tantalizing stories that you'll have to make sure to read. Thanks again, Anna. Thank you. This was the Chronicle Headlines. I'm your host, Nathan Serkin. And I'm Amherst Edwards. And, and we'll, we'll see, see you next time. time.